Money FM 89.3, best of your money. Money and me on your money, only on Money FM 89.3. I'm Michelle Martin. Welcome to Money and Me, where we answer real investors' questions. And if you have any, you can send them to me. You can reach me at Michelle Martin Radio. That's me on Instagram. So, what happens when a digital exchange exits a country? What does it mean for you? And you know, you've heard of Mt. Gox, that infamous crypto exchange. Well, it's planning to repay victims. Remember, the tokens got stolen because of a hack. How could that repayment? Uh, repayment impact the value of Bitcoin. Later on, we'll we'll wander into the universe of NFTs, and it's all over the news, right? Gary Vaynerchuk is pre-selling a million books because of his promise of a free NFT with every twelve books. Can just about anybody in the storytelling world, or anybody in the collector world, maybe not necessarily an artist, um, can anybody do what Gary Vaynerchuk? Did. Can we replicate what he did? Or do we all need about 9 million Twitter followers? <laughs> do we need his level of popularity? We put those questions to the ever-wonderful Arun Pai, our endless stream of knowledge of uh, all things to do with the markets. How are you, Arun? Good morning, Michelle. I'm good. How are you? I'm doing really well. He's Chief Strategy Officer at Flow as well. Okay, let's talk a little bit about uh, what happens when a digital exchange exits a country. Yesterday, I talked to um, the the people who are behind Huobi Singapore. Uh, this in the context of Huobi Global announcing its exit from the Singapore market. That's going did so a couple of days back, and the move has been described as a strategic one to pave the way for Huobi Singapore. What I'm interested in is what happens to Singapore-based users. They've been advised, uh, users of Huobi Global I'm talking about, they've been advised to take immediate action, close out their active positions, withdraw all digital assets before March 31st. Uh, so basically, when a digital exchange exits a country, is it just your responsibility to close the accounts and get all your money off it? Uh, yeah, pretty much. I mean, at the end of the day, like, it's not just Hobi, right? Even Binance, when they set up initially, the thought process was, we had this really large company exchange, whatever you want to call it, uh, out of China. We can just start expanding into the rest of Asia and all of that. But that's not how Singapore, a country that has MAS, that regulates financial markets quite actively, uh, did not agree to it. So now all of these companies are basically, while they might be regulated by the Chinese counterpart of MAS, when they set up shop over here, it has to be a local entity that is properly governed and regulated based on local laws. So it's just this transition in a way from just being this global entity setting up over here to having a local regulated entity. But from the perspective of an investor, a person who has an account with uh, this, with Binance Global, et cetera, you have to shut it down, i.e. you've got to transfer your digital assets. You can either close out your assets, like you know, if you're long Bitcoin and you can sell out Bitcoin through the exchange, convert the money into fiat and then tra- or into a stable coin and then transfer it potentially to uh, Huobi uh, Singapore or the local entity that gets created. But there has to be this aspect of closing down your account because that entity where your account or the centralized entity where your account where your capital, where your assets, where your coins are residing will not exist, well, in the case of Hobie past March 31st. 
So from that aspect, it's just like shutting down any other exchange or any other wallet. You've got to transfer your money out into another custodian or a decentralized exchange. Or, I mean, if you had the practice of just never leaving your coins on an exchange, uh, you can move them to a cold wallet, right? Of course. So, I mean, there are all sorts of startups and companies and options that are out there. You can take them out, put them into a cold wallet, as you mentioned, like a hardware piece where mm-hmm. it's impossible to be hacked. Uh, you could put it into a decentralized exchange where no one is custodizing your asset other than the fact that it's actually prevalent or the information is securely stored on a blockchain. But the flip side to that is without any central aspect, it's literally you and only you who holds the password and the key to open that vault. So it's, I mean, the equivalent in the fiat space is something that we're a little bit more used to. Banks are centralized entities, right? You take your savings, you take your monthly earnings, whatever you want to call it, or even whatever your trading accounts are, and you trust the bank for custodizing or managing your assets. That's the equivalent of the likes of Huobi or Binance or even these digital exchanges, just the difference being these things are doing managing your digital assets vis-a-vis a bank that's managing your cash, which, I mean, for all practical purposes right now, is it, is, has gone digital. So exactly the same thing where now, you know, without the central entities being prevalent over there, you just need to manage your money yourself. It's like having cash underneath your bed that you keep secured. The responsibility, the entire responsibility falls in you to ensure that it's safe. Be it a cold wallet, you need to ensure that the safekeeping of the hardware is there, as well as the passwords, obviously, similar to decentralized exchanges. The only the, the advantage, I would say, or the relatively seamless uh, customer experience one can have to shut down a digital wallet because of these assets being, well, natively digital, obviously, the transferring of assets on-ramp, off-ramp to other wallets, etc., is a lot easier. As compared to, say I own Microsoft shares in a certain exchange, mm-hmm. say Interactive Brokers, and I have to transfer that from IB to Saxo Bank or vice versa, or to DBS Vickers or whatever it is, it's a lot more of a convoluted process. You know, there are paper forms involved. It, it's not as straightforward as compared to transferring these digital assets from one place to the other. So basically, as we see um, some crypto exchanges trying to sever business ties with mainland Chinese clients because of Beijing's uh, ban on all cryptocurrency trading and mining, uh, we're we're seeing uh, ramifications of foreign investors around the world, basically, right? It is. I mean, this is, it's such a new space. There's bound to be, and I think we're just in the first innings right now in terms of regulation, in terms of how this is going to eventually pan out. But whenever any country, like this is not, uh, you know, back in the day, say like a Facebook or like an e-commerce platform where there basically aren't that many or if any regulations in terms of setting up shop and expansion globally. At the end of the day, when you're dealing with capital, when you're dealing with assets, there will be some amount of regulation. And I think literally it's the first thing I, I genuinely think that uh, financial institutions and so like central banks, I should say, and regulators are taking a look at this space a lot more actively and figuring out how they can go about forming regulation around it. I mean, the Singapore FinTech Festival that just finished last week, mm-hmm. that was a lot of points of discussion were literally 
be it Temasek, be it, or, you know, pseudo-government entities, be it MAS, be it ministers, all the thought processes around how do we manage this regulation while not stifling innovation. And I think that's going to be this fine balance that we're going to be seeing a lot more of play out over the next six months, year, or decades for that matter. And speaking of the need for regulation, I mean, there were a lot of victims when uh, the once big guy in the digital currency, uh, digital exchange space, Mt. Gox, uh, fell, the mighty Mt. Gox, when it fell. Mt. Gox, though, in the news because it's planning to repay some of those victims after it lost 850,000 Bitcoin tokens because of a hack seven years ago. Uh, The repayment proceedings lie in the hands of its Japan trustee. Um, And it's a huge amount we're talking about in terms of compensation. So the victim's not going to get everything that they once had with Mt. Gox. They'll get sort of a percentage of it. But what I'm interested in is this little figure that I saw from Bloomberg saying the repayments could lead to the distribution of more than $8.5 billion in Bitcoin. And I'm wondering, I know this takes place over a certain amount of time, but could flows this large impact the value of Bitcoin, Aaron? I mean, it's interesting wherein $8.5 billion is obviously a lot of money, but from the aspect of how big Bitcoin's market cap has gone, like it's over a trillion dollars, right? In terms of, I mean, that's on the market cap side. On the 24-hour volume side, it's like over 30, 40, sometimes $50 billion in a 24-hour volume of the amount of Bitcoin that's traded. So from that aspect, is $8.5 billion really going to cause that much of a big dent in the market? Potentially not. On top of that, I mean, honestly, who were the guys who got involved in buying Bitcoin seven years ago on Mount Gox, right? These people were the staunch believers that Bitcoin is going to be Ah. is better than sliced bread, right? So from that aspect, are these people like they were really, really early adopters in all fairness? And I mean, kudos to them for making a ridiculous amount of return. So from that aspect, are these people suddenly going to say, oh, you know, now that I've gotten a certain amount of Bitcoin in my wallet back, I'm just going to go out and sell it immediately. I mean, there'll be a certain percentage, obviously, because uh, they've suddenly accrued so much wealth. But uh, I'm not sure that that's going to be that substantial a portion, especially relative to the amount of 24-hour volume that's there. What I find really interesting, and I've not gotten a clear answer of this myself, Hmm is, you know, this Bangkok, like they lost like 850,000 Bitcoin, as you were mentioning, right? And mm-hmm. they totally had like close to uh, a million Bitcoin. So they have about 140, 150,000 Bitcoin left. And hence the value comes out to be $8.5 billion uh, if you take the price of $60,000. Mm-hmm. What I find interesting is, you know, even if you assume that all, I'm not exactly sure how the liquidators uh, are going to be able to uh, assign the amount of Bitcoin back to the users. In terms of what will be interesting for me to find out is in terms of the users who do get a certain amount of Bitcoin back, in terms of fiat currency, in terms of US dollar, have they actually gotten back a lot more than what they potentially lost in terms of Bitcoin seven years ago. What I mean by that is, if a guy owned one Bitcoin seven years ago, and right now they only get back, say, 0.15 of a Bitcoin, because Bitcoin has basically gone up a gazillion percent, in terms of fiat, are they actually made more than whole? And just based on simple 
like math, it seems like in terms of fiat, these guys actually have come out potentially better than, you know, just buying or selling at every dip or every high. Like, uh, oh, my truck. gosh. That After just, you know, it, it's like a buy and, it's like a forced buy and hold strategy. <laughs> but in exchange for that, we'll take away, you know, we'll take away like 85% of your uh, amount of Bitcoin. But you know what? This asset's gone up like uh, a million percent. So <laughs> you're actually better off in a weird uh, way. <laughs> that is a very interesting perspective, uh, especially since you say these guys to begin with and, and early adopters. We hope some women in there, too would already be gajillionaires if they hadn't lost their cold wallet um, coins and, and passwords, of course. I mean, instead of a bazillionaire, they'll be multi-millionaires just because of the fact that they still own 0.2 of Bitcoin, right? Yeah, so, I mean, to begin so with, I'm thinking if they were in Mount Gox that early on, they'd probably yep. made a tidy sum already, you know, right. in this space. So, yeah, really interesting. I, I didn't know that Mount Gox, I mean, in doing research for it, I just realized that Mount Gox was based on uh, the game, Magic the Gathering, a card game. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I did not know that. Learn something new every day. Thank you, Michelle. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, apparently in 2007, there was a developer and he bought this domain, Magic the Gathering Online Exchange or Mt. Gox for short. And he was a guy behind an e-sharing network called eDonkey, a file-sharing network, eDonkey. Who knew that file-sharing was going to lead to a Bitcoin exchange. Well, there you go. Uh, let's turn to uh, come back to Earth a little with China. Apparently, there's secretive plans by China to replace American technology. So my question is, could the push to replace foreign suppliers be very good news for Chinese tech firms? A bit of background. China doing this via, apparently, according to media reports, a secretive government-backed organization to approve local suppliers in all sorts of areas from cloud to semiconductors. This committee was formed way back, 2016, to advise the government. And it's now been entrusted to help set those industry standards and train personnel to operate trusted software. So what do you think? Chinese tech stocks getting a lot of bludgeoning. But do you think this big push to replace foreign suppliers could be extremely good news for Chinese tech firms now being relied on? It's it's interesting wherein, you know, as you rightfully mentioned, this uh, IT application innovation working committee was formed in 2016. Yet the news headline came out, I think like yesterday or day before, if I'm not mistaken, highlighting this committee a little bit more, right? So obviously that's uh, maybe some kind of a ploy or some kind of technique uh, by uh, the CCP. And what's interesting is the timing where obviously, you know, Joe Biden and uh, President Xi just mm-hmm. recently met and they had apparently quite a healthy uh, three and a half hour virtual summit. From the aspect of, you know, investors taking a look at this, uh, just taking a step back in terms of their meeting in general, it was very cordial, right? It was as expected. uh, No crazy headlines were required out of this. No uh, posturing was required. I mean, as Joe Biden said, we just want simple, straightforward uh, competition. Now, obviously, it's far from that. But from the market's perspective, this was taken very positively that as long as there's no further escalation in terms of deterioration of the relationship between these two superpowers, that could be considered as a very positive sign. Taiwan was obviously highlighted, and Taiwan is so important to address your question because, you know, TSMC exists there, right? And that's been in the news quite a bit 
over the past couple of weeks with apparently the U.S. government asking TSMC for more further like, questions about right. uh, customers, partners, all of that stuff, and TSMC claims that they've not done it. I think when you look at the tech landscape in general, uh, has this been a big, like, the stability aspect overall, coupled with uh, the fact that China, in spite of the meeting, quote-unquote, going quite well, has brought up this news of this committee and this IT application innovation plan. Apparently, they've expedited something like 2,000-odd Chinese suppliers across PCs, chips, networks, like all the, all, all, basically the entire gamut of tech companies. They, they're expediting the application of these people, contingent to them not being foreign-owned or even like owned by more than like 25% by foreign-owned. The fact that they've released this news headline in spite of the good meeting of, between the U.S. and China leaders I think it just goes to show, yes, they set up the committee five years back. Now they're looking to truly execute on this plan. They're expediting it. They want to go down this path, right? And they come up with some interesting headlines of how Alibaba's cloud is basically 100% locally created and owned mm. and are doing such a fantastic job, right? And all the government agencies, et cetera, are using that, which is quite interesting considering what they were talking about, Jack Ma, a couple of months back. But anyway, sticking to the technology aspect, and not so much about the politics of it. It's interesting that, uh, you know, this whole aspect of locally grown and cultivated tech is going to have a lot more of an impact in the Chinese economy. So from that aspect as an investor, I think it's even more reason uh, to deep dive, take a look at, you know, what hap- what is happening onshore in China, because it is the world's second largest market, right? Like you can't not have investments in it. So from that aspect, I think it's obviously great for the local tech ecosystem. That being said, though, as an example of TSMC, as an example of if you go really, really into the high tech space, Mm. where from an investor perspective, it's much healthier margins, much bigger competitive moat, there's still a lot of reliance on foreign technology. And so then it kind of goes back to the lower margin, higher volume business or tech companies, which can make a decent amount of capital, that can be fully, you know, locally created and grown in China. But have they managed to, you know, take that leap where they're able to get into this extremely high tech space? Not just yet. Do they have the capabilities for it? Most definitely. But this is not going to be like a one or two year thing, right? This is going to take Mm -hmm. a while for them to be able to catch up. And overall, like globally, it's not the greatest thing for investors, right? Because you don't want to start having two or three completely independent ecosystems closed off from one another. Ideally, you'll have like this global protocols wherein let let the best technology prevail. And then you start seeing a lot more offshoots. You see a lot more secondary companies that are based on that technology and you can scale up the entire ecosystem a lot better. So hopefully the fact that Biden and President Xi have, you know, been apparently been great friends for many, many years as both vice presidents. Hopefully there can be a lot more resolutions over the next uh, three years before uh, Biden sadly is going to leave. I like I like the sound of that. Much better than, um, you know, are we seeing the path towards two metaverses, one of China's and one of the rest of the world's? <laughs> <laughs> that, that's, and it, it's completely antithesis to the aspect of uh you know, Web 3.0, it being decentralized, technology protocols, not letting governments, etc., be involved too much. Right. Some amount of regulation, yes, but, you know, maybe not that much. 
Right. All right. Our final topic for today, Gary Vaynerchuk, he wants to make us all rich. That's what he's built his career based on, right? How to, Teaching people how to make money. So he has pre-sold a million books in advance, giving away a free NFT with every 12 books. NFTs, he said, were the culmination of all the themes in his career, collective collectability, supply and demand, storytelling, IP, marketing, community building. So if we were to try to reverse engineer the stunt, do you think it's replicable, Arun, that any author could be capable of a similar feat? Or do you need the bigness of the tribe behind you, a large tribe of preferably (laughs) Gary V's 9 million Instagram followers? Well, Michelle, firstly, I think you should genuinely be creating your own book and NFTing that out and distributing it. Okay. (laughs) I I hope I get a certain commission for coming up with this extremely innovative (laughs) idea. You got it. (laughs) No, but you know, like this NFT space has obviously uh, just gone completely bonkers in the past (laughs) six months or a year, right? The amount of money, the amount of uh, like capital, media attention, et cetera, is extremely high. So from one aspect, I'm like caught in between where I genuinely believe the end use case of its technology. And I remember talking about this like five, six months back mm-hmm. with you. I think the, the the use case of the technology is something fantastic, right? Where you have, rather than platforms taking up 30, 40%, be it the likes of Sotheby's, be it the likes of Spotify, these people taking such a huge platform fee out of this ecosystem leads to, sure, I mean, if you're the cold plays or the Guns and Roses and Metallicas of the world, you're still going to be making your tens of hundreds of millions of dollars. But the smaller artists, they're just never going to be able to survive on that. It's like if Visa suddenly starts charging a 20-30% commission for using your credit card, your mom and pop shops basically go out of business because cash is kind of dying and in the card space and in the payment space, there's such a huge amount of value that is extracted out by the platform. You just can't do your day-to-day business. So from that aspect, I think it's fantastic. The technology is fantastic. From the aspect of, is this in a huge bubble right now? I 100% think so. Like the amount of money that's just pouring in, people are just flipping stuff. Forget, you know, overnight, in a couple of hours, couple of minutes, making an absolute killing on this. Now, it's, what, what I would like to be very specific about, though, is it's not as easy as just going up to OpenSea, which is this NFT platform, mm-hmm. and putting up your own asset and then thinking that you're going to suddenly make you know, a million dollars or two million dollars overnight or in a day. That community building aspect, what you highlighted about Gary, is so important Right now, when there are obviously millions of eyeballs looking at this space, you need to be able to capture their attention. And there are hundreds of thousands of these projects getting set up. Are hundreds of them making suddenly their asset is appreciated 10 million percent? Yes. But there are equally thousands of them that are not succeeding. Like whenever there's any boom in any asset class, you will see a lot of capital obviously going into that space, but you'll also see a lot of players are trying to monetize that, right? So you will see in, over the next couple of months, you'll see these millions of NFT projects coming along. And, and there are like local shops over here and stuff. My brother-in-law was telling me about this judo studio that's coming up with its own NFT based in Singapore. 
it's, okay. it's thousands, right? Like it's, mm. it's hundreds of thousands. But it's interesting, and you know, I hate to be the broken record, but the internet, you know, it created pets.com. It also created Amazon, Google, Facebook, Netflix, etc. And that's just a natural uh, progression of when new technology, a lot of interest of investors, a lot of capital gets thrown in. It's going to be a huge boom and bust. But the underlying technology is phenomenal. And I think that's going to make a huge difference over the next 10, 20. I mean, the way we live the rest of our lives. Fascinating. I think I'm, I'm going to be on a panel discussion soon uh, and we're going to be talking about how NFTs have really changed the world of art. I mean, Christie's has launched an NFT platform for fine art. And some would say art itself was this form of sort of uh, NFT in, in a way, but that it was a closed system and only, you know, a precious few could afford art pieces, could then bank on, on, on it appreciating based on collectability and, you know, the tribe around it, so to speak. And what technology has done is opened that world, not just the art world, but, you know, this idea of collectibles and uh, the social aspect, people behind it, opened it to everybody. I mean, absolutely. The, the, the proof of ownership the provenance is what Sotheby's used to at least claim that they can take the 30, 40% rate on selling a piece. Because if you're buying from Sotheby's, you know that this is official and they've gone through all their checks and balances to go through from the entire history of transfer of ownership. You don't need that with technology right now. If you couple provenance, the history of ownership, with the aspect of making it available to the masses, Either a smaller, like a smaller quantum of uh, an art piece, or fractionalization, right? So either way, you like. I think a couple of days ago there was this NFT of buying a piece of the Constitution of the U.S. Oh, really? Right, like a, a page of it. It's phenomenal, right? So from that aspect, collectible market, like the art market, has been completely turned topsy turvy. Where you've gotten all these smaller people who are, who can get access to the space and actually make a living out of it. So that's fantastic. It is. We'll continue to keep an eye on this space, of course. Uh, whether you you want a crypto punk or you're you want to take part in a crypto Coachella, <laughs> <laughs> we'll check it all out for you. Hey, Arun, thanks so much for joining us and helping us understand markets this morning. My pleasure. Thank you, as always, for having me, Michelle. The terrific Arun Pai, Chief Strategy Officer at Flow, illuminating markets for us this morning right here on Money and Me. Before acting on the information on Money FM, please consider if it's suitable for your own investment objectives, financial situation, and risk tolerance. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download our audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O. Available on Google Play or the App Store.